0: The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. We've recently had some great conversations with directors whose documentaries are currently available on Netflix. Ken and I spoke with Rory Kennedy about Downfall, her searing indictment of Boeing and its enablers. We also spoke with Andrew Rossi about the Andy Warhol Diaries, in which he reveals the poignantly personal side of the legendary artist. And Ken spoke with Cootie Simmons and Chiki Oza about Genius a portrait of another great artist, the young Kanye West, as he makes his way from obscurity to renown. You can find these conversations in the Top Docs feed, and you can watch these documentaries now on Netflix.
1: Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson and welcome to Top Docs. Today I'm talking to Varun Chopra, the director of the short documentary, Holy Cowboys. This interview is another in a series that we're doing with next-gen filmmakers, the next generation of documentary filmmakers. These interviews are also part of a partnership that we have with the Palm Springs International Short Fest, which is happening June 21st through the 27th in Palm Springs, California at the Camelot Theaters. Holy Cowboys is playing in a shorts program called Higher Ground, which screens Sunday, June 26th at 10 a.m. Holy Cowboys had its world premiere at the Indian Film Festival of Los Angeles in April of this year, And last month, screened at the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival, where it won the Golden Reel Award for Best Documentary Short. This is a fascinating short film that in some ways resonates with the feature doc from last year, "Writing with Fire. Of course, both take place in India, and to some extent, both focus on the BJP party, which is Prime Minister Modi's party, which over the years has fired up its Hindu followers and put India's Muslim citizens at serious risk. But Holy Cowboys tells its own story. It's a very poignant character study of a young boy and his friends in a small rural part of India amidst a larger cultural context in which cows somehow become a major source of conflict and violence. It's also told in a very creative way, by turns more literal or mystical or even tapping into the subconscious of the director, all of which I get into in my interview with Barun, certainly a next-gen filmmaker to watch. And of course, please support us by following us wherever you listen to your podcasts and following us on Twitter at Pod. And now coming up, my conversation with Barun Chopra, the director of Holy Cowboys. Varun Chopra, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you.
0: Great to be here.
1: Can you give us a brief logline of the film?
0: Holy Cowboys is a window into the world of young boys from small town in India where cows are considered sacred. We follow a group of boys who go on a journey to become saviors of the holy cow and their journey takes them to access the world of cow vigilantism and right-wing extremism in India.
1: So your film, Holy Cowboys, is focused on issues surrounding the cow, which is sacred to India's majority Hindu population. And as you tell us in an beginning inner title has emerged as the nation's most polarizing animal. And around that, self-appointed cow saviors or vigilante cow protection groups have surged in the country. So how did you come to find out about these cow saviors? Was it through the media? Was it through first-hand observation?
0: The way I started on this project was Historically, cows have always been a very big part of the sacred nature of things here in India. And I grew up with that, having grown up in India. And in the recent years, we found out that a lot of people were coming in the fold of the cow saving. Or the call for protection of the cow and i found that certain members of my family were also indirectly supporting some of these cow shelter groups and um, just venturing into that i was super curious to understand what this world entails and how things have shaped up obviously there had been a lot of coverage 2015s and 2016s about how this movement is slowly getting co-opted by the right-wing how becomes sort of this stand-in for something much larger. And when I tried to get more access into this world and I found that there was a story here that was not only filled with curiosity and ironies, but also was extremely urgent. And I was really wanting to share this with the world.
1: And what's the backdrop for this story in terms of the locale? Can you tell us a bit about that?
0: Yes, yeah, so the location of the film, these groups actually exist in all over India and little pockets and small towns, even like in urban spaces and capital cities now. When we shot it, we got access to this group in a small town, Wapi, in Gujarat, also the native state of Prime Minister Narendra Modi at this point. It's sort of become this epicenter of a lot of these movements and how a lot of genesis of orchestrations that happened within the right-wing organizations and, you know, how it's getting propagated alongside everywhere in India. But so Wapi in Gujarat seemed like a very perfect town to shoot in because we had gathered access to it. Also, this town is known for big chemical industries and polyethylene and polythene production that is often exported out of India, trash bags and such. So it just seemed like the right setting that offered us all the things that we wanted to cover and everything else that followed was a very natural progression of observations that we found.
1: In terms of access, the main character is one of a group of boys that you follow. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how you met this group and got to know them?
0: It was a very chance interaction. The initial access that we'd gotten was with this group. The big Hindu right-wing faction, which used to be on the margins, it was sort of a marginal organization, but it's really exploded on the scene. And we had access to them and they had a few boys that had already been like working with them. They were sort of training and giving guardianship to these boys in their little after-school programs, also known as shakhas, which are these schools that prepare young kids to teach all the lessons about the nationalistic ideas of things and self-defense and all that. But it's really akin to a lot of uh, neo-Nazi ideologies about discrimination and things about Hindu supremacy. And these were the kids who were already part of that. They came under their ambit. And when we were meeting a few kids in that group and in that school, we had found Gopal, who was the lead in the film, who turned out was one of the only people in this group of kids who wasn't going to these schools, mainly because he couldn't afford it, because he had to go work in a factory. And right at that point, there was a very clear class distinction, which is also something that's subtly hinted at in the film. We just found that this was the person that we wanted to follow because he did have certain aspirations, but also... So he had told us about his connection with the cow and how he had like, you know, grown up around cows and helped in some of the missions that the kids were doing, but he wasn't directly affiliated to the organization. But after we went in, like things were slowly beginning to catch him up in the whole circle of things.
1: Yeah, that's interesting to hear that he wasn't initially involved in the program itself, and I'm going to ask you about that a little bit later. But I did want to ask you about an early scene with Gopal where he goes mm-hmm. into this field, which is strewn with trash, and he connects with this young calf, and he brings yeah. the young calf to this cow shelter. How did that scene happen? Were you just following him around a lot and one day he ended up there? Or can you talk a bit about that scene?
0: Yeah. So there's a degree of hybrid nature of things in this film. A lot of the stories that happened are very organic, very natural, Verite style that we shot and had an observation over time. This was something that we felt was pretty important to be included in the film, but it was completely based off of the story that Gopal had chosen to tell us. He told us about how one time he was around and he found this little calf and he brought it to the cow shelter by talking to his friends about where to take them and stuff. And so we found this a great opportunity to sort of recreate that scene. All the story that he essentially told in the beginning of the film works out is an actual retelling of what had happened before with him beyond that we sort of take his story and then we what he didn't have was he hadn't had no real interaction with this group once the group interaction started to happen everything that follows became very sudden and it also lent itself for the vigilante people to sort of assert themselves over him because they were trying to woo him for some in some reason it sort of worked out for us because then they were becoming evident and very clear in terms of introducing not just Gopal but also the audience as to what their motives are and what they really do
1: one of the sort of ongoing activities in the film is that the boys are preparing for an upcoming Hindu festival and their yeah. task is to put up saffron flags, which seem to be associated with Hindu pride. Mm-hmm. And as, as part of their preparation for that, they go to a kind of clubhouse of sorts to meet up with a kind of an older mentor type. I wanted to just ask you about a moment where another guy arrives and he's met with a greeting, Jay Shri Ram. Yeah. And I just was curious to hear more about that greeting and its cultural context.
0: Yes, of course. So Ram is one of the terms that we really, you know, it was something that we really went back and forth as to should we subtitle it, should we include, do we want the audience to know? And it became very clear after a point that we, genuinely wanted everybody to know that. The term really is, while growing up, I used to hear that term in only in temples. It's Ram is the patron saint of a lot of Hindu vigilante movements these days, but he used to be a very different version of one of the gods that we have in Hinduism, one of the major gods that we have in Hinduism. So the definitions of that have also changed. So what I used to hear uh, Jai Shri Ram growing up used to be a term of endearment, a term of greeting, something that packs people together in in faith, akin to, you know, all hail any other God. And that term is now much like a lot of the movement has been co-opted. So you'll see now that Jai Shri Ram here in India has become a term that everybody from people who are trying to attack mosques to kids in schools who are trying to Ban hijabs in their school for women going against the Muslim students also use the same term. And it's sort of become this war cry now. And that term in itself is such a universal term. And I found this really interesting that this co opting has also taken over a word that used to mean something entirely different just a decade ago, for instance, you know. So Jeshiram has that connotation. Again, like it's harder in a span of this film to really introduce that as a concept and really go and explain that. But I'm super glad that you caught on to something like that and now we're talking about it.
1: I have to applaud you on the nuance and the subtlety with which you construct a lot of the film. And that was one of the cases where if you paid close attention, you're like, there's something more here going on. So I'm really glad that we have this opportunity to talk to you to learn about the background because it is fascinating and disturbing to hear how the term has been co-opted from one of sort of a universal greeting to one that's used to divide people.
0: Thank you. I'm super glad you caught on to that for sure.
1: There is a scene that takes place after Gopal finds his calf and helps save it in which his friend says, hey, let me take you to this volunteer group. And he's brought in front of the group and he's presented as this sort of hero for having saved this cow. And the leader of this group is talking to the boys about how they once lynched a cow smuggler and torched his truck. It's a very disturbing story. And in the midst of this story, the camera moves in on a mask, which is mounted on the wall. And it's a very evocative Mm -hmm. mask. It's a fascinating moment in the film where the camera kind of takes on a life of its own. Can you talk a bit about the mask, and also your directorial choice to go from a more literal plane to something that seems a bit more mystical or certainly less literal? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's a great question. So this is also rooted very much in some of my personal experiences and how I could insert my subconscious in the film without having to insert my own personal views, because we started with an understanding that we're going to show things as is. However, I think the effigy or the mask that's on there has a deeper meaning. Me and my editor, we were pretty fine with that not coming across in a certain way, even if it comes at face value, that's completely fine. But here in India, one of the things that happens is a lot of people use something like that mask and they put it outside their homes to ward off the evil. When I was growing up, it became one of those things that it's supposed to be a protector and it's supposed to be this really devilish face on it, but it's supposed to be a protector from evil. So there was some inherent irony. There was some inherent like discord in that image in itself. And I couldn't reconcile with the fact that every time I saw it as a kid, it used to stand in for something scary. And I I couldn't understand why we chose that as to word off bad omen or a, a demonic figure. When I was going through and making this film, there was a lot of intersection between how I thought about that image and how the vigilantism was sort of corrupting how people projected themselves as protector. But what they really did was scaring people off and becoming a devilish character. So to make that intersection became one of the last things that we really thought thought of and set but it became something that we probably weren't really sure if we were going to include that in the film. But as we went on about our editing process, we figured that that was something that stood in for something much larger. It stood in for a little point of view of our own in the film amidst all of this chaotic stuff that's happening. How we view things. A little subtle hint at it, but it's something that's like really deeper to me. Yeah, it
1: really does seep in and I think it brings you to another place as somebody watching the film. From a directorial point of view, can you take us into that room because you're shooting and then do you actually go and move in on the mask itself in the moment or how did you capture that shot?
0: That mask was something that was part of the only set piece design that we put in the room. But that was something that we wanted to cover in the wide shot. If somebody notices it, they notice it. The idea of directorially going from that space to another space was really to make that connection between who we think is demonic in this. That space in itself represents something inherently evil, but they don't present themselves as such. They're presenting themselves as heroes. They're presenting themselves as vigilantes who are gonna somehow like be the guardians of our entire religious group. But what they're really doing is something that's that's devilish and they're causing actual harm. But Saying all this in a film was something that we were really stifled with. We were trying to understand, we don't want to insert our actual voice into the film or have somebody say this exactly, because that was not the motive of the film. It's really to present things as is. But the problem with presenting things as is, sometimes it can be misconstrued and interpreted in ways that do not represent the point of views of the filmmakers. And this is one of the things about the ethics of the documentary that while we were in that room, we really tried to focus on how we could present ourselves and make sure that we're present in the film without having to insert ourselves forcefully. And it didn't feel trite. Also, the mask comes later in the script once what we feel is sort of that. Transition moment where his innocence has been corrupted after he participates in that whole chaotic apprehending scene and the night raid that they do. And now he's inextricably a part of it. And it felt like the right moment to bring back a little surreal moment into the film, trying to gauge who these kids were and what they're becoming now and where this is not a safe place. And I felt like that mask. Because of its consistency and how it's placed and sprinkled around different parts of the film it sort of speaks to that.
1: There's a the later scene in this same mm-hmm. volunteer meeting with this same guy who is sort of advising the boys. He believes in one thing, which is using violence against those he perceives to be getting in the way of his religion in order to instill fear as a tactic mm-hmm. to get those people to capitulate. And he says, don't try to be a Gandhi, let them create one Pakistan. And thanks to his ideas, we face many Pakistans in every corner of India, it's time to wake up. Right For me, as a Western viewer, I would say this is Mm -hmm. a particularly chilling line for many reasons. But for one reason, it references how far India has seemingly come in terms of its relationship to nonviolence as a means of Mm -hmm. change. And it seems to indicate, you know, Gandhi, who we think of as this revered figure, is viewed in a very different political, cultural context These days, I know I'm sure it depends on who you ask, but what would you say Mm -hmm. is the changing legacy of Gandhi in the context, at least of the people in this film?
0: I think there's always been a faction of the population who have been, like happens with any other major figure who becomes beyond themselves and becomes this larger than life figure. But Gandhi is extremely unique because not just what he stands for India, but what he stands for the world and in a lot of ways... Because of the lot of movements, his movement inspired in the world, whether it's Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela, it represents a certain section of the world in my head, how things were sort of threaded from him and how you can speak to power. And I feel like this entire thing represents how the world in itself is shifting and moving to a very dangerous place. We're finding that the ideas of tolerance and nonviolence are just shrugged off as weak. And this is the time of strong men, whether it's the US or Russia, India, what have you. And this sort of wave is transporting in the world and it's very dangerous. But going back to what Gandhi really means and what his legacy means, one of the Very potent ironies is the bigger organization that's supposed to be this like umbrella organization behind the BJP, which is Modi's political right-wing party. That's the one in government. They have full majority. They pretty much do whatever they want at this point. And there's a lot of authoritarian ideas about them. But what they're really fighting is that's just one part of their movement. The bigger part of their movement is cultural erasure. They're fighting a culture war. They're trying to reconfigure what the image of India really is and what it stands for. And one of the things that had happened back in the day is one of the first people to denounce Hindu nationalism was Mahatma Gandhi. And he was also killed by a Hindu nationalist, assassinated by them, a person that belonged to this umbrella party. He's supposed to be this poster child, the hero of the movement because he assassinated Gandhi. It's exactly that. And now that same party, which was on United States terror list for a few years and then was banned in India, has now made a resurgence. And now they're the authoritarian leaders of this country. And that in itself is such a potent irony and speaks to the legacy of Gandhi from where we were and how we are now ruled by people who had a similar ideology to the person who assassinated Gandhi. So that was pretty unreal, and I think... That's what's represented in the film as well.
1: Yeah, and then to hear it vocalized and crystallized in this way is pretty chilling. Speaking of chilling, there is a scene, it's one of the crucial scenes in the film, where you seemingly go along with a group of these cow vigilantes. When they get a tip of an alleged cow smuggler, they find this guy. It sounds like they're smashing up his truck and make plans to torch it. And then at one point, we see, I'm pretty sure we see Gopal in silhouette there with them. Can you talk about this event and what it was like for you
0: to be there with Gopal? That scene is an amalgamation of a couple of different scenes. It's the same thing. We followed these guys for a couple of days and that sort of position from the idea of we wanted to pr- bring upon a little bit of, there was a lot of discussion about the ethics of the documentary. We didn't want to put any of the children in this situation where they could be legally responsible for something, also ourselves. But when we went there, we had to stop a lot of things from just going very f- farther than we thought. And especially when you're dealing with people who just already have so many pending legal cases against them, some of them even being for lynching and murders. So it was a very tricky position to begin with. And then we found ourselves in this whole situation, we wanted to make sure that we stray away from trying to put too much focus on the kids and make it more about the exploitation of it all. So... Being there and seeing what Gopal was witnessing, to be very honest with you, I wasn't sure what his takeaway from this entire thing was. I figured there's going to be a little disillusionment, but one of the things that happens is people's material realities are very different. You know, when you're living in a small town, things that factor in are you have very small scope of mobility and you latch yourself to people and tag along with people who perhaps have some sort of power over you and to defy their ways or to even have the power to say that you refuse to be a part of them when that's your actual soul group is increasingly difficult and these are some thoughts that sort of you know something that i was shrouded by in the moment after the whole thing was done i think there was a very eerie silence which i chalked up to be something that pretty seriously had happened and we had, you know, we had captured. But as for Gopal, I wasn't quite sure if being used to all these stories, uh, witnessing it now, has really impacted him in any way.
1: I was left wondering about the ride home and whether you did specifically talk to him about what he had seen and what he was thinking.
0: Yeah, no, Gopal Gup- in itself, I think one of the reasons that we also chose him, because he's he's a very timid, very shy very soft-spoken young man. You could sense that in a group of people, his friends who were already part of this movement were definitely way more vocal and they definitely had a little more power over him in that equation. And our ride back home was a mix of that. It elicited itself like in a very weird way. Like initially there was a lot of excitement about what we're doing and where we're going. And as things settled in, we didn't try to push ourselves into how he viewed things. So once we took off from that place, we found that The kids that he was surrounded by had such an impact with this entire thing. They were so excited and they had come out of that experience pretty amused, which was shocking in itself, but not so much. And I think he couldn't gather enough courage or I I doubt if he even felt that like he had witnessed something quite intense. Because again, intensity of violence or what have you is pretty subjective. That's how we get normalized by our situation if we see the same thing every single day. At that point, to be honest, I was more concerned about the people uh, than the kid, but he had witnessed it.
1: Gopal is a fascinating person to watch throughout the film. He's obviously at an impressionable age. And what's amazing is throughout the film, we can, I think, literally see in his face and the way he nods that he's taking in everything, trying to figure it out. By which I mean, how is he going to shape his own identity? It's really quite amazing. And I just wonder if you ever talked to him about those issues of identity formation, you know, Mm Gopal, like what kind of person do you want to be? What are you thinking? I'm just really curious about both your impressions of him processing these things and then any additional conversations you've had with him about it.
0: Yeah, of course. Since I I do a little bit of work here in like small town India, I was a little more aware of how people usually think and what their material realities are. Talking to him was more about an experience of, you know, how if you come there as an adult trying to talk to kids who are already used to just listening and agreeing to the adults. It became pretty clear that like, if I was to say anything that I was agreeing upon, I needed to come with a sense of curiosity because usually the kids are very agreeable. If you're an adult nine times out of 10, they would agree with you because that's how they grew up to be agreeable with you. And in his situation, he had mentioned that he wanted to go further and study. He wanted to study commerce and go to the city. I mean, we're talking about people who who live two and a half hours away from the city of Mumbai, the financial capital. And they had never even been or sat in a bus to go outside of their town. That's the level of material reality we're talking about. And his attempt at mobility, no matter how encouraged it came from our team, we had visited his house as well. And it became very clear that like, Being the eldest son in the family with two sisters, there was a very big expectation from him to keep working. He's barely 16, and it seemed extremely difficult for him to realize any of the dreams that he had mentioned to me. And I know this is one of the very hard realities, and it's often chopped up to be, you know, as filmmakers, now that we've told these people's stories, is there any way that we can assist them? And I still talk to them on WhatsApp and I still, you know, chat with him every now and then. What are you up to? It's one of those things that like, It becomes increasingly hard for us to intervene and tell him that, you know what, if you need any help, let me mentor you, let me help you get out of this. But this was one of the things that I had told them that the only way they're going to get out of this circle is if they leave their bubble, you know, because staying there with the same group of people with the same ideology, it's going to foster a certain kind of individual in him. And that's not something that's going to take a very positive turn for his identity and his personality. It's hard because there are very few metrics that as an identity of a person, which again is fluid, but still there are very small metrics when you're that person to attach yourself to. So you'll attach yourself to something that you're inherently proud of. Uh, it's not his caste. It's not, His social status, it's definitely not what his father does, and it's not what his class status is. So he has to pitch himself and identify himself as a Hindu. And the only way he wields power as a Hindu is going to be over minority groups. And the only way he does that, if he joins and becomes a part of this group, so he can wield power and think of certain kind of mobility that he can achieve in his lifetime. That's really what my reading, having spent time with him, over a few months has been.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask about his parents. There are no parents who appear in the film, which is interesting. And I'm sure reflective of the fact that these boys spend a lot of time on their own. Certainly Gopal, as you mentioned, he works in a factory. Ironically, it's a plastic bag factory, which plays into the whole situation with the cows eating these plastic bags. But He does seem like someone who is in a difficult situation, you know, being essentially forced to work
0: for the family. Yep, 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 definitely. It's already pretty evident when you come from a certain place of privilege and then you insert yourself in their world. So it becomes increasingly hard to suggest any solutions or alternatives that would just sort of change their position in their community. But it's definitely difficult. It's definitely very difficult in the way he's growing up and the kind of work that he has to do. I feel it becomes increasingly impossible for him to even study further, let alone like trying to leave his city or be able to make something of, of himself away from all of this chaos that's happening.
1: So counterposed to that chaos is the final scene of the movie in which the four boys are on a boat of some kind and it's shot during magic hour. It's very beautiful with the light. The four of them are sitting on this boat and they're all looking in different directions out at the water. It's a beautiful Mm -hmm. shot, but it's also ominous in its
0: own way. Why end the film on this note? Being in that town... And having to explore that space, I feel like every time, even in the film, when their interactions with any of the adults, whether it's at the cow shelter, whether it's at the office with the vigilantes or what have you, there's a power dynamic. They're not able to reflect or there's not a moment of calm. There's really no reflective moment for them. It was really a chance interaction too, because we just decided to go with the kids one day on this boat, sort of like picnic day. And we recorded a few things. And it made it to the final film because I think that was one of those days as well. What we really chose to do with that was to offset the already insane things that have happened and then leave with an ominous and sort of calming moment where the city is way further away. So the point that I had observed with the film, you know, talked to them about, I wanted to present that in the film as well, that I think it's open ended and you can see where they're headed. But the idea that in my head, there's also a solution being offered, which is the only way they'll be able to reflect and see anything outside of their existing world is if they move away from that place. And when you see the temple and everything in the background while they're in the boat in the lake, it becomes pretty evident that this is the moment of calm and silence and perhaps even suggest a solution while we're at it.
1: Yeah, to quote the great Joe Strummer of The Clash, the future is yet unwritten. So uh, (laughs) there is possibility in that final scene, but there's also, I would say, a a darker edge as well. You know, that takes me to my last question, which is you talked earlier about the world moving to a darker place and India. Mm -hmm. Where do you think India is headed? And if it is headed down an even darker path, Do you think this can be averted?
0: I consider myself a very hopeful person. So in all seriousness, I would say, yes, there is an aversion. There is a way to avoid an even darker path, but there's work to be done and a lot of work to be done in a space where a lot of systems of checks and balances have just collapsed on their face whether it's the judiciary, media, whatever, people who are supposed to, you know, take accountability of the people in power, if they have collapsed and the systems have just given up and ideas like tolerance are derided as weak, then, then there's a lot of work to be done. And it needs to come from the same people who these vigilantes think that they're representing. I think one of the major reasons why I wanted to do this film was even though I'm not a practicing religious person, I grew up in this religion. So I do have an awareness and I do have an understanding of what this entails. And the deep rooted irony is a religion that was in a community that claims that it was born out of the ideas and principles of nonviolence. That's also something Gandhi says. And now we're on a path where this co opting movement has taken over everything and wants to have this war cry. I think. The biggest work needs to come from people from within the community. It cannot be people who are getting discriminated against. It cannot be people who are getting attacked. It definitely cannot be the minority community. So it's upon us privileged people and people who are aware to ask for that accountability, that why is this happening and why are we allowing this to happen? This may require a serious discussion from people from the majority population who somehow think that they're victimized but they're definitely not. And that's my view on it.
1: Well, thank you so much for showing us in one small way, one small corner, what's happening and perhaps a glimpse into why this is happening. The story is both particular and specific, but it's also clearly universal. And I just want to say, you know, this is a case where I really thought the film was tremendous and talking to you I think I've learned so much more about it and the backdrop for it and some of the nuances that I'm really glad that we had a chance to talk today. And I urge everyone to see
0: the film. Thank you, Ken. It's very rare that we engage with a short film like that. I'm glad you engaged with it in such a level. And I'm so glad that we were able to have this conversation.
1: Can you tell us what's up next for you, Varun?
0: Yeah, after this project, I'm working on a couple other things. One of them is, it's the feature version of the same story, kind of building the same world, the exploration of growing up in small town, rural India, within a window of the 2010s, and how the country has radically shifted from becoming this modern democracy to slowly shifting into being the number second in the genocidal watch in the human rights space. And the second one is basically a smaller idea that I've been working on. It's called Where's the Party? And it's a small story that covers different multiple political parties in India who choose to represent a certain demographic right from the poor people party versus the party that hopes to bring forward the voices of lovers, also known as the lovers party of India. So it's a story that takes in all these demographics and has all these political parties and talks about the multifaceted nature of India that has kind of been overshadowed by how things have become unilateral and one-dimensional at this point. Fascinating.
1: Thank you. Take care. You too. Do you have a recommendation for a documentary short?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I have a friend who made a film called A Broken House, Jimmy Goldblum. He's the director and producer. He was also on the Oscar shot list. You could probably find it on New Yorker. And it's a really amazing story about a Syrian architect who makes miniatures of his home back in Syria. And then over the course of time, as destruction happened in Syria, how he adjusts and alters his creations to represent what his home now looks like. So it's a great, great portrait piece, but done in a way that takes the attention away from violence and uh, focuses on this person to create empathy.